You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. The COVID-19 crisis has hit the luxury and fashion industry hard. Sales in these two sectors could drop by 25 to 30% compared to 2019. The economic and health crisis could also have long-term repercussions on purchasing behavior, trends, and trigger tremendous changes in the luxury field. My guest today on the Luxury Item Podcast has a less doom and gloom view on the future of luxury. In fact, in his new book, Future Lux, What Lies Ahead for the Business of Luxury?, He paints a brighter future of where the luxury sector is headed and identifies where the growth opportunities will be. Erwan Ramborg has been a top-ranked analyst covering the luxury and sporting goods sectors for 15 years. After eight years as a marketing manager in the luxury industry, notably for LVMH and Richemont, he is now HSBC's managing director and global head of consumer and retail equity research. This isn't the first time Erwan has written about the luxury business. In 2014, he wrote a book called The Bling Dynasty, Why the Reign of Chinese Luxury Shoppers Has Only Just Begun. He regularly contributes to the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, CNBC, and Bloomberg, and has guest lectured at top universities all around the world. Welcome to The Luxury Item, Erwan. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on your new book. Uh, Very exciting. Uh, Future Lux. But, you know, it's not the first time you've been around the block with a book. You know, in your book from six years ago, The Bling Dynasty, you talked about Chinese consumers being more important than ever for your brand as they were on track to dominate the industry over the next decade by an enormous margin. Talking about nailing that one, and this was six years ago, you know, right now, China's the only bright spot in the luxury industry these days, and the demand for luxury goods is projected to grow as much, I think it's like 30% this year in China, while the rest of the world is shrinking by 45%. What did you see in the you know back then? Well, I, I think over time you've had uh, consistently misplaced fears. Um, you know, every time there's a crisis, whether it's um, you know following the appointment of Xi Jinping or whether it's uh, uh, you know just a few years back where you had uh, uh, stress around tariffs and trade, you have this tendency of investors to think that for some reason it's the end of Chinese luxury um, consumption and. You know, there's still a lot uh, of Chinese consumers to recruit. Um, and to your point, the, the growth this year will be tremendous, partly artificially because you have a repatriation of growth. You know, no one's able to travel these days. Um, so the Chinese consumer staying at home and she's buying at home. Uh, but beyond that, you know, sort of mechanical, artificial element, you have a proper um, consumer confidence on the high end. Uh, you know, I think speaking to a lot of people based in Shanghai and elsewhere in China uh, about COVID-19 and how they're experiencing it, you know, many will tell you it's a, a vague negative souvenir. You know, I'm based in New York. <laughs> Obviously, it'll be difficult for me to um, describe it that way. So I think there's a combination of um, pretty good confidence um, in, in the way this crisis has been dealt with by the authorities. And beyond that, um, obviously, a lot of wealth creation in China, uh, the repatriation uh, of growth, short-term boosting figures. Uh, but you're right. I think if you leave aside the Chinese consumer uh, this year, uh, there's not a lot to play for in, in luxury, with the possible ex- exception of the American consumer. Um, I have to say that recently we've seen a better pickup than expected in the U.S. as well. Any particular part of the U.S. and what, uh, what part of the luxury sector? 
I would say it, it's pretty much across the board and there are several reasons for it. I think historically you had a good correlation between equity markets and luxury demand in this country and equity markets are right now close to all time highs. Um, and you've had the reality of staycationing, you know, so people not traveling to Europe as they usually do over the summer, uh, not spending on flights and hotels and fancy restaurants because a lot of them are closed. Um, and so you've had what you know, some economists and the, the Biden campaign have referred to as the, the K-shaped recovery. Um, so people who are not that well off ahead of the crisis or even worse off, but uh, people who are doing well, um, they're actually feeling uh, pretty emboldened. You know? And if they happen to have a secondary home, uh, you know, the, um, the value of that home has probably gone up. And I think there's a big difference relative to the sort of post 9-11 um, crisis where, you know, there was a guilt factor. It was seen as inappropriate to, to purchase luxury, even vulgar uh, at some stage. Um, I don't think that's the sentiment at all. I think wealthy individuals in the U.S. Um, are happy to come back and spend. There's a bit of a, you know, what some people called a survival trade. I, I've lived through this for the past six months. I've survived it. I'm allowed to reward myself. This is the time to come back. And so even logo heavy products counterintuitively seem to be coming back strong in the US. So how did Future Lux come about? I mean, you must have started writing it before COVID hit. And how has the pandemic impacted those trends you predicted? Yeah, so I, indeed, I, I did uh, write the bulk of at least the first draft pre-COVID-19, um, uh, looking at lots of changes in the industry, looking at M&A consolidation, um, and looking at uh, the need to move uh, to the next phase for what has maybe been a bit of a complacent sector. You know, I think um, because you've had really good growth, high margins, uh, great cash generation, uh, you've had a lot of managers who were maybe resting a bit on their laurels. Um, and I had the view that um, you needed a bit of a kicker. Uh, it could well be that, uh, you know, COVID-19 <laughs> gave you the, the sort of catalyst uh, for change that might've been needed. And so, as I said, I, I wrote the bulk pre-COVID, but I rewrote, uh, if I can say, uh, a lot of the parts of the book uh, post-COVID um, and you know, finalized the book just out of the summer. And I think COVID brings about a lot of uh, acceleration. You know, it's not as if I had added uh, a chapter or subtracted a chapter, um, but some of the trends I had identified are just gonna uh, take place in a much shorter period of time. So some of those trends include you know, localization. So I, I was talking about repatriation of growth in China. Uh, the fact that you should target local consumers and consider that tourism flows are the cherry on the cake. They're not the cake. Um, digitalization, for example, which uh, was much needed. Um, a need probably also to reinvent retail, uh, to make it more exciting, to rethink your, you know, the stores. Um, and then maybe a fourth uh, element, which is again, consolidation. You've had a lot of M&A over the past 10 years. I think right now uh, with uh, COVID-19 still uh, being prevalent uh, and you're seeing you know, the resurgence of cases in uh, parts of Europe, in some states in the, in the US. Uh, but once we're done with this, I think consolidation M&A uh, will resume uh, and that will also uh, accelerate uh, linked to you know, the, the, the gradual weakness of the small independent players relative to the bigger groups. Yeah, I think you said in uh, it's, uh, something I read that you know, the family controlled luxury brands will be merging or selling their assets, not because they have to, but because they understand that it's probably the better solution for their name to still be around in 30 years time. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think um, you don't have four sellers uh, in, in the branded space, at least. And you don't have a lot of brands being at risk of going bust, uh, which you know will be different if you're looking at retailers. But if you're looking at the luxury brands themselves, um, they could probably all survive. You know, they might be loss making uh, this year, or at least in, in the first half of this year, uh, but they will probably muddle through and survive. Uh, but surviving is obviously not the, <laughs> not the end goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think indeed, if you are family controlled and if you want your asset to be in bright lights, uh, over the next generation or two, you might come to the conclusion that, um, you know, being backed by a bigger group that has greater financial means could be a good thing. You know, imagine you're a small independent company in uh, crowded spaces like footwear or ready to wear or handbags. You know, if you're the, you know, the number 23 handbag company and you're small and isolated, um, I think you don't have the deep pockets that are required. Um, and scale actually matters because luxury remains essentially a recruitment uh, industry. You know, it's not about repeat purchases. Obviously, if you can make consumers loyal, that's a good thing. But the starting point is the vast majority of sales are still made with first time purchasers. And if that's the case, your capacity to outspend others uh, is key. And so if you just go back to the handbag uh, example, you know, if you're in the market of my first branded handbag, the likelihood is you'll go to one of the top three. You'll go to Gucci, you'll go to Chanel, you'll go to Louis Vuitton. Um, if you have more means, you might uh, consider Hermès. If you're edgier, you might consider Dior or potentially Prada. But, you know, outside of that sort of pack of five or six uh, go-to brands, it's going to be a lot more difficult to emerge. Um, and so, again, being uh, backed by a bigger group that has uh, means to invest behind you uh, can probably secure uh, the long-term uh, future and relevance of your brand. And it also seems that some of these family-controlled luxury brands, some of the smaller ones who had not invested as much in e-commerce before COVID hit could also be left behind and just be very vulnerable to uh, the larger players. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I shouldn't be saying this, but I, I used to work in the industry uh, and, I, and that was a while ago. And at the time, we didn't really know who we were selling to, right? And we didn't need to know because the growth was such that uh, it was more about, can I actually produce enough? Uh, then do I fully know who I'm selling to? That, you know, that era is over. Uh, you are looking at a much more competitive space. You have to have a keen knowledge of who you're actually selling to, what drives her motivation. Um, and I think that, you know, that's part of digitalization. It's part of systems, you know, CRM systems. If you walk into a Montclair store, uh, you know, they will know who you are. They will know that you were there six months before. They will know that your son is turning 12, you know, next, uh, uh, next October on the, the 15th and that his favorite color is green, you know, and that nev- level of knowledge um, is, is clearly not uh, widespread uh, within smaller brands who don't necessarily have the means to invest in those systems. Uh, but again, it will differentiate the level of service, the level of attention and your illusion as a consumer that you're being treated like someone who's absolutely exceptional. You know, it's a sort of, um, I think it's fair to say that you don't have uh, scarcity in luxury, um, scarcity of product. You know, if you leave aside maybe Patek Philippe or maybe Hermes or one or two other brands, it's not about scarcity. It's about giving you the illusion of scarcity. You are someone special. We are selling something special to you. And the way we're communicating is just for you. You know, you need to live under that illusion of 
uh, a bespoke product, a bespoke experience, a bespoke communication uh, to you. And again, the you know the bigger groups will have the financial means to um, uh, step up in terms of systems and in terms of knowledge. Knowledge is power, you know, with the consumer. Right. And if you don't really know your consumer that well, you're going to struggle. You know, right off the bat in the first chapter of your book, it's titled "The Future Is Female." You know, women are already driving somewhere like between 70 and 80% of all consumer spending. And we know they're the chief decision maker in the household, and that will continue to intensify. So with all, you know, with the female spending power on the cusp of becoming much greater, how do you think luxury brands should start shaping their strategies now? Yeah, so I think uh, when I, uh, to your point, the chapter is called The Future is Female, I got, um, I got a bit of pushback from people saying, well, the past was female and the present is female, uh, which, is, which is fair. Uh, but the, the reason I'm saying the future is female is that uh, because of, uh, you know, what Shinzo Abe in, in Japan would have called womenomics, you are seeing um, salary gaps um, uh, tend to narrow between uh, men and women. You're seeing the participation rate uh, in terms of employment going higher. You're seeing um, people getting married later, having fewer kids, or if they're having kids, having them later. So it will free up a lot of spending. Now, this will obviously be... Uh, at a great advantage for female-driven businesses. You know, in luxury, you can think about jewelry, uh, cosmetics, handbags, and accessories. But way beyond that, um, it's going to influence a lot of subsectors. And one example I put in that chapter is an interview of an entrepreneur in spirits um, on purpose because spirits uh, traditionally has been very uh, male-driven. You could argue quite macho in terms of its communication. Um, and I think, again, if 80% of household spending is driven by women, even spirits, which comes across as being a male dominated uh, industry will be influenced by women. Um, I think there's also a real contradiction between uh, luxury spending being 75, 80% uh, uh, female driven and um, the organization of management teams within the industry. You know, it's uh, surprising that the bulk of decision makers within the luxury industry are usually men, usually white, usually, um, you know, in their 50s or 60s. Yeah, I think you, uh, I, actually, I think you called it an embarrassment. <laughs> it is a bit embarrassing. <laughs> it is a bit of a, there's a clear dichotomy between the demographics of uh, management uh, within the, the, the sector and the, you know, the target market. The target market is mostly young, uh, mostly female, uh, mostly diverse, uh, mostly Asian. So, you know, I think, I think you're going to have to have a lot of changes in terms of the management team. I, I just think the metrics will force you to look uh, again um, at who uh, develops the brand, who is influential uh, within the companies. And I do believe you will see younger managers, you will see more diverse managers, and hopefully, essentially, you'll see more women. Uh, and you have a lot of, you know, it's, it's not that... Uh, you can really fall behind an excuse of, we don't have the quality uh, of managers on the female side, that's wrong. You have a lot of um, very high quality managers that are female and that can run a lot of businesses in this industry. Yeah, I think in your book you predicted in the next 10 years, the majority of the board members and at least 25% of the brand CEOs will be female. And that, you know, that certainly will be great. Um, we're seeing right now that the number of women running Fortune 500 companies recently hit a new high, and I'll put that in quotation marks, like 37 up from 33. Right. You know, while that's kind of like a small victory, it's still a very small percentage. Percentage. So what do you think has to change in these companies to get to that 
Well, I think uh, a, a lot of, uh, again, the changes that needed to happen pre-COVID uh, are going to happen now because it's a bit of a wake-up call. You know, it's a bit like in digitalization. There's this ongoing joke around, you know, who, um, who really transformed um, your, your company technologically? Was it your, you know, your uh, chief of IT? Was it your CEO? And the answer is neither. It was COVID-19. So, you know, again, a lot of complacency in the sector, a lot of people being happy with themselves. Uh, suddenly a huge uh, unprecedented crisis makes you rethink. Um, and, and so that's why I'm, you know, I'm an eternal uh, optimist because I think that there are a lot of silver linings in, in the COVID-19 crisis. Um, and there is a realization that you know, you're seeing now uh, the groups in the sector uh, appoint uh, diversity and inclusion managers. You're seeing uh, a lot of groups in the sector uh, appoint more and more um, female managers at higher senior levels. Um, I, I think it is happening as we speak, actually. You know, I think it, it is ongoing. I think there's a lot of pressure to do the right thing. Um, and I think what COVID-19 also uh, has taught you is that uh, it's important to have good products, but it's important to come across as a good corporate citizen. You know, at the end of the day, consumers don't just buy products. They don't just buy logos, they buy your values. They buy your trustworthiness. Uh, they buy the fact that you share um, a common destiny. So, you know, I think uh, societal uh, messages, um, messages around gender, diversity, age, uh, all of those are, are very important. We've seen outside of luxury, uh, a lot of companies like Nike, for example, in the US, really capturing the cultural zeitgeist um, of, of the moment. Uh, and I think it's the role of luxury companies to, again, step up and to realize who they're selling to and what she's thinking. And she's thinking, you need to be uh, a bit of a modern company. You can't be the old school European arrogant um, seller of products. You have mm -hmm. to have values. So well, speaking of silver linings, do you see a silver lining when it comes to the role of stores, you know, what do you think the role of the store is going to be when we come out of this crisis? Can the demand for luxury goods and social distancing really live in the same world? Yeah, so I, so I think the, uh, that, that's an interesting uh, uh, way to approach it because uh, I think fortunately for luxury companies, uh, stores were never really crowded. Um, so I think social distancing is something that you've practiced, uh, not on purpose, but just because you're selling high ticket items. So you never really had the issue of a packed quartier or retail store, you know, or very rarely so. Right. Um, so it's not exactly like Apple and it's not exactly like Nike. Um, you have uh, learned, um, and, and to be fair, pre-COVID, you already had management of flows, right? You had queues uh, outside of luxury stores to ensure that you were serviced correctly. So I don't think social distancing is a real issue. However, more holistically, I would say that the role of the store will continue to be paramount. And I was mentioning Nike, uh, or I can mention cosmetics as well. You know, Nike tells investors that eventually more than half of their sales will be online. And I trust they will be. Um, if you look at some of the cosmetics companies, already today, more than half of their business is online. I don't think that will be the case for luxury. Uh, not anytime soon. And the reason for that is, again, you are looking at a recruitment industry. You're not looking at repeat purchases. So most people who buy, you know, Montclair, Gucci, Cartier, whatever other brand is buying for the first time. She wants that, um, um, she wants that purchase 
to be meaningful. And certainly it is meaningful from a price point perspective. So it's, it's almost an investment. So if you're buying your first Cartier piece of jewelry, your first Omega watch, your first Vuitton or Gucci handbag, um, there's a story to tell. You know, it's not just the brand telling you a story as a consumer, it's consumers telling story between themselves. Uh, and if your story of my first branded handbag is, hey, I was online and I clicked twice and I received it after 48 hours, that's not a story. That's beyond dull, right? So, so I think um, I think you want to touch and feel. Again, you're spending several hundred you know, dollars or thousands of dollars in some cases. Um, and the store is not just about selling. The store is the media. The store is the story. Um, and so again, um, you know, we'll we'll talk about different stories when we will have moved to a repeat purchase market. But as long as there is predominantly recruitment in luxury, um, I think brick and mortar actually has uh, great days ahead. The issue is it can't be any store. You know, it can't be the impression of déjà vu, um, déjà vu, as the Americans say. Um, you can't live under the illusion that you've been there before. You know, if you go to a flagship store on Fifth Avenue, you better hope that the Soho store has nothing to do with it in terms of artwork, in terms of assortment, in terms of the way, um, you know, the sales associate uh, addresses you. Um, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of pressure on brands to move away from a sort of cookie cutter approach and to, again, give you the illusion that if you're going to a store, in a given city or a given neighborhood, um, you get the impression that it's the first time you've been treated that way. And what do you think the role of the sales associate's gonna be now? Well, I mean, the, um, you know, she will or he will uh, ensure that you're having a unique experience and that indeed, hopefully you'll come back. But there was a very interesting comment from the CEO of Louis Vuitton recently um, when he was asked, you know, what happens when your 400 and, and something stores are shut? And he said, well, we actually have 12,000 stores, meaning we have 12,000 sales associates and right. they are basically the face of the brand. They are what you will remember when you're back at home, that conversation, that experience, those uh, shared experiences uh, and shared stories is what will remain with you beyond your handbag. You know, it's, again, it's not just about product, it's about an entire environment um, and, and the time you have spent with that person to learn, you know, to be educated, to be entertained, um, and, and to basically uh, have an elevated experience, which again goes beyond the, beyond the functionality of a watch or a handbag or something that's, you know, very pragmatic and very object driven. Um, it's more about that relationship. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not exactly what you bought, it's, it's the memory you have of it. That counts tremendously as well. Um, so I think the role of the sales associate is not to wait uh, behind her counter, hoping that someone walks in. It's much more outgoing. It's much more interactive. It's much more, um, yeah, it's much more active. I think, uh, I think the role of the sales associate is absolutely paramount, but it has to, it, it has to, you know, you, you, you're changing uh, that role tremendously uh, for the future because you need that engagement to be special. Yeah. One of the uh, one of the trends you identify in future lux, which we're kind of already seeing in motion, is this heightened environment and social consciousness as consumers become more thoughtful about their choices. And you talked about it a little bit before. So with the pandemic and social movements accelerating this buy less but buy better attitude, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, so I think you're you are facing a younger generation of consumers who are actually asking questions. Um, and again. 
in the initial phase of my first purchase, I won't be asking too many questions. I'll want to fit in uh, with the appropriate brand or the appropriate logo to ensure that my coworkers, family members, friends, et cetera, recognize that I'm worthy of doing business with or, with, or uh, worthy of a promotion or basically worthy of being seen as, you know, uh, uh, potentially becoming part of the club, if you will. Uh, but then as you evolve, you're, you're moving from buying for others and buying for fitting in purposes to buying for yourself. And again, here you'll start to ask questions in terms of how has this been produced? You know, what is the environmental social consequence of buying this product? What do you do with the product once it's, uh, its use is, is over? Um, what do you, you know, how are you organized as a company in terms of governance? Um, I thought it was quite admirable to see that over the past six months under uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, pressure, it, it's, it was very difficult for brands to advertise and to push products, but they use that opportunity, that window, to do a lot of PR online and to talk about how they were repurposing production sites to produce hand sanitizers, to produce PPE, um, how they were giving to charity, how some were actually building hospitals in Milan, uh, believe it or not. And, Again, if you if you talk about cultural zeitgeist, you know what are you doing for me? You know how are you giving back to the community? Um, you can't be you can't come across as being a greedy uh, corporate who's just there to take the money and run. You have to give back to the community, and I think a lot of the brands and groups have done very well um, to come across as being good corporate citizens. And talking about yeah, LVMH was right out of the box. They they acted on it immediately. Yeah, but I mean, LVMH did a lot, Caring did a lot, Montclair, uh, a lot of them have been front and center in terms of putting through appropriate messages to tell you as a consumer that, you know, we, we understand what you're going through. You know, we feel for you, we're going through the same and we're trying to help, we're trying to give, give back. And these are super positive messages. Uh, but then, you, you know, the, uh, the cartoon with the different waves, you have the COVID-19 wave and then you have the recession wave and then the biggest wave uh, behind you if you thought COVID-19 was an issue, is the climate change wave. Um, and so indeed, uh, this young, you know, Gen Z or, or um, selfie generation or however you want to uh, call them, they are asking questions also in terms of how are you producing this? Are you selling secondhand? What is the, the life cycle of the product? Tell me about circularity. And, you know, for a lot of these questions, brands don't really, don't really have a, a set up solution, but they better get their act together soon because there are very few people asking these questions, but they are more vocal than most, uh, and they will be more influential than most. And as more consumers um, come online to this sector, I think uh, I think these issues will become front and center. Yeah, last year, 32 fashion companies, including the pillars of the world's luxury fashion market, you know, Chanel, Ralph Lauren, and Prada, among them, they announced they were signing this fashion pact, this non-legally binding agreement to combat greenhouse gases and emphasize sustainability in industry. So how important was that industry pact in turning a niche concern into a real movement? I think it was quite important, um, all the more so as it was run by Caring. Um, and Caring, as you uh, probably know, the, um, the global head of sustainability at Caring is on the executive committee. Um, I think, um, the CEO of Caring, uh, you know, takes sustainability issues uh, not as a you know sort of box-taking exercise, but uh, as being embedded in everything they do. Um, and so, looking at an EPNL, environmental PNL, uh, for all the different brands, and they actually mean it. And I think 
the fact that you had initially, I think to your point, 32 uh, brands or groups, and now you have more actually um, joining uh, the bandwagon, I, I think, uh, you know, I think it's a, a sort of systems of uh, balances and checks, you know, to, to, your, uh, to your point, it's not binding, but you have a sort of moral uh, obligation um, of, of trying to be reasonable. And you, you've had, you know, you've had some articles and you've, you even had a book called Fashionopolis. You know, I'm, I'm not here to advertise other people's books, but I think <laughs> it was quite meaningful um, in terms of the fashion industry being one of the most polluted on the planet. This is starting to go out there. You know, this is starting to affect consumers who are thinking about it twice and thinking, you know, if I'm looking at fast fashion and I'm buying an article of ready to wear and I'll wear it three times and then I'll ditch it, what does that do for the planet? What does it mean about me? You know, what, what am I projecting to peers? Uh, is this reasonable? So you want to live under the illusion that, you know, not every product will be like a Patek Philippe that you'll, <laughs> you know, transmit to the next generation. Um, but if you can have um, that type of approach, or if you can have a sort of Patagonia approach where, uh, you know, products can be repaired or products can be traded in uh, and used for other consumers that will expand the the life expect expectancy of that product. Um, these are really positive messages. So I think, you know, I think gradually everyone is, you know, uh, waking up to the new realities uh, of what consumers need and, and fundamentally what the planet needs um, and behaving accordingly. Um, so, you know, it's not one, um, you know, one um, initiative in isolation, but clearly the fashion pact, I think, um, has made uh, decision-making more visible, has made a lot of companies um, engage, uh, and it's certainly a great thing. In the book, you interview several CEOs from some of the largest groups and brands, including Kering, Cartier, Puma, and Montclair. And one that kind of stuck out with me um, was Ramo Ruffini, you know, the mm -hmm. chairman and CEO of Montclair, talks about luxury goods sector evolving, and he says uh, in the book, clients need to feel part of a community and companies need to be ready to explore new ways of thinking, continuously delivering newness and using the language of digital in particular with the youngest ones. And Montclair is one of those brands that has quickly, and to my opinion, smartly pivoted to meet this new generation of luxury buyers. I think like 40% of Montclair's customer base, Gen Z and millennials, and I think it's even higher among their genius collection customers. Mm -hmm. So what do, you, what do brands like Montclair and Gucci and Vuitton understand about the Gen Z customer? So, so first of all, I think they understood and they were quite surprised at um, how much the young generation connects to luxury. You know, four or five years ago, you had comments from people saying, oh, the new generation will move away from luxury because they have other interests. And it's exactly the opposite that, that occurred. I.e., again, this selfie generation is quite obsessed with its image the perception uh, on social media and brands are at the center of their lives to a certain extent. But beyond that uh, and beyond what we, what we mentioned around uh, values and purpose and, and the environment and you know, basically giving back to the community, I think what Montclair understood more than anyone, uh, but you're right to also uh, mention Gucci and Vuitton because you're seeing that uh, for those two, two brands as well, is the entertainment value. You know, no one needs luxury, uh, but luxury needs to put a smile on your face. Luxury needs to surprise you. Luxury is the little things in your day that makes that day way better. Um, and so you were mentioning the Genius Project, um, very difficult project to implement. You know, if you think about the 
um, the tensions in terms of design, production, marketing, retail. Uh, essentially, the Genius Project is to institutionalize collaborations, not on a two to three year basis, but on a monthly basis. Basically, the idea is if you go past a shopping window display at Montclair on a monthly basis, you'll have something that will surprise you. You might love it, you might hate it, doesn't really matter actually, it'll jump out at you. You cannot go past that shopping window display and not notice it. And so I think this idea of surprise and delight, this idea of, you know, you've had horrible words uh, being thrown out there like retailtainment, you know, the idea <laughs> that uh, you're walking around a shopping mall or you're walking in a high street and suddenly something puts a smile on your face, something surprises you, something basically enlightens your day. That's, you know, that's part of the mission uh, of, of these luxury brands. And it's certainly what the younger consumer will resonate with. You know, give me something to write home about. Give me something that um, just, uh, you know, even if it's for a very short period of time, give me something that puts a smile on my face. Um, and I think, um, I think that entertainment value, that surprise and delight approach, I think Montclair absolutely nailed it with the Genius Collection. The, the, the difficulty now is once you've moved from collaborations being, you know, every other year to every month, I'm not sure what the next stage is, you know, because the amount of pressure it puts on teams to be that creative on such a regular basis is just tremendous. Uh, but clearly no, no one has followed suit, right? Because it's, uh, it's quite unique what they managed to pull off. Yeah, I recently had Jeff Carvalho, he's the co-founder of High Snobiety on the show. And we talked about how streetwear culture has moved to mainstream over the course of the last decade. And mm -hmm. it's led to this luxury streetwear. So what do you think the underlying forces that merged those two together to make it bigger than ever? And do you so think, think streetwear will continue to influence luxury fashion? Absolutely. Uh, especially as, you know, Gen Z uh, was, you know, maybe 9% of the world population in 2016 will be 30% uh, of the population uh, by 2030. Uh, casualization, uh, sneakerization, as some media uh, have called it, which again, another horrible word, but um, the idea is the younger generation is not uh, dressing in the same way that, that we were or are, depending. Um, and, you know, I often have the question from people saying, uh, you know, this, this trend in sportswear, for example, you know, the Nikes and Adidas's and Pumas of this world, um, can the growth continue after this super cycle of growth that we've been through for the past 10 years? Well, it's not a super cycle of growth. It is a generational shift. It's just the way people dress these days. And honestly, COVID-19, again, um, if a lot of us have been forced to, to stay at home, and we've been basically, you know, on Zoom and watching yoga tutorials, um, right. uh, and and you know, and buying Lululemon and those types of brands. Um, I don't think that's going to help in in becoming, uh, you know, more formal in in the way we dress. So, I think you still have um, streetwear having a lot of potential. It it doesn't work for every brand. Um, so typically, you know, within the the caring group, you might think that it's a great boost for Balenciaga. It's probably not adapted for Saint Laurent. You know, Saint Laurent streetwear casualization is not part of their DNA, and that's fine. It's not going to be adapted to every brand on the planet. Uh, but certainly, um, I don't think it's going to disappear tomorrow. And you've seen recent collaborations between Dior and Nike, um, mm -hmm. which again, tells uh, the consumers of Dior that uh, it's a cool brand because Nike is a cool brand, but also, uh, you know, Nike, as I was mentioning, um, is, is pretty much front and center with the whole Black Lives Matter debate in, in the US. And, you know, with 
the association Dior is also embracing some societal change in the US and that can't be a bad thing. So um, I don't think that you'll see streetwear um, evaporating uh, in terms of relevance anytime soon. Well, let's pivot to the weed business. I, I, I figured there's now as good a time as any to, to, to switch gears a little bit. So weed is a booming industry in the U.S. and we're already seeing dispensaries that look like Apple stores, you know, thousand dollars sculptural water pipes being sold at Barney's when it was open, you know, cannabis packed in cut crystal decanters, you know, vape pens designed with executives in mind. And among the books, your books insights into the next decade, you mentioned that sellers of luxury handbags, shoes and watches will face stiff competition from a new breed of upmarket goods, including cannabis. Yeah, um, so what I would say is it's a substitute in terms of share of wallet. Um, you know, I, obviously it's, uh, um, cannabis is not um, accepted from a federal point of view in the US for now, uh, it's, it's state by state. Um, it is federally accepted in some uh, markets like Canada um, uh, and a few other uh, markets around the world. Um, I think the day luxury moves from being all about recruitment to being about um, uh, replacement or repeat purchases, then yes, you will have a lot of substitutes um, of which cannabis. Now, the substitute in the sense of, you know, if you go to Denver in Colorado, or if you go to LA, you will have high-end streets where you will have uh, cannabis and traditional luxury competing for space, i.e. locations, competing for staff, um, and competing for your wallet, you know, and if you're in the market of my first handbag, well, you know, um, other, um, other, uh, you know, premiumization of other subsectors of which cannabis will not be an issue. But if you are a repeat purchaser, i.e., you already own two to three or more handbags, then yes, it starts to come into play. Um, and you know, I wouldn't limit it to cannabis. Actually, you you can look at clubs, you can look at uh, gyms, you can look at coffee. You know, you've had the example of roasteries at Starbucks, right. uh, where. Uh, again, you're looking for a unique experience and it's uh, uniquely priced for it. Uh, there are a lot of uh, subsectors where you will have a super premium version of that sector, which again will take away from uh, incremental luxury purchases. Um, so for me, yeah, you're, you're, if you look at locations, if you look at um, staff, um, so talent basically, um, and if you look at share of wallet, cannabis can be a substitute like a lot of other subsectors um, in the longer term. Yeah, I think some of the. I think you also mentioned that health and wellness is one of those sectors which cut across a bunch of categories, like categories like uh, beauty and fashion and travel and fitness, all go under that health and wellness umbrella. And it's really a super, a super fast growing segment that uh, accelerated during the pandemic. And you know, affluent consumers are willing to pay premium for these perceived wellness solutions. So your feeling is like cannabis, you know, money that consumers would normally spend on traditional luxury products could be reallocated to the luxury of sound mind and body. Yeah, no, I, I think health, you know, you've had comments around health is the new wealth. Uh, and clearly in some markets where it's either costly or complicated um, to, to be protected uh, in case you, you uh, become sick. And, you know, the U.S. Uh, is one of those countries. Um, I think you've had, again, a bit of a wake-up call thinking, you know, I should probably have a more balanced life. You know, uh, the, the pandemic has been an eye-opener um, and people have probably been thinking, um, you know, I better stay fit. I better watch out um, in terms of what I'm eating. Um, I, you know, maybe I, I need to have a, a better sleep uh, routine. 
Um, maybe I need to practice yoga. Maybe I need to practice meditation. I mean, if you look at meditation apps, they're not exactly free and they are actually recruiting, um, you know, stars, uh, Matthew McConaughey, John McEnroe, right. whoever will help you to fall asleep. It, it sounds nuts, but the reality is people will pay up for well-being. People will pay up to literally sleep at night uh, better. Um, so do you think in very stressful times? So, so do you think the value proposition of luxury brands will have to expand to include emotional experiences that reduce anxiety, focus on wellness, you know, be entertaining, and have more of this therapeutic value? Do you yeah, think I, like I, traditional luxury players need to integrate those elements? I think gradually they have to take into account a, a more holistic approach uh, to the consumer. I think it it is to a certain extent the role of of EMH as this sort of proxy for the sector because it's so big to redefine what luxury needs to be. Um, and to be fair, you know, recent acquisitions from LVMH, if you look at Belmond, uh, which is basically hospitality hotels, if you look at Remoa, which is basically luggage, um, you know, travel and hospitality, which in hindsight, I mean, it's quite easy to, to say today in hindsight that the timing of the, these two acquisitions wasn't great, but who knew that COVID-19 was coming, right? But, you know, once the world reopens, Appetite for travel will come back. Appetite for, uh, you know, a stay at an exceptional location, uh, a great hotel or a Mishnah star restaurant. Yeah, these are substitutes to my next handbag or my next, you know, piece of jewelry. Um, and certainly for LVMH to invest in those areas, you've had a few eyebrows being raised, but it's completely logical. I mean, the mission of LVMH and other groups for that matter is to basically uh, tap into your wallet as a, a wealthy consumer, they can tap into your wallet with everything with the possible exception of an iPhone or a Samsung uh, phone. You know, um, I don't think there's any limit. I don't think you should put any limit um, on, on how much they can tap into, um, you know, upper middle class wallets. Um, so, um, you know, the sky's the limit to a certain extent. If you see that, uh, um, you know, consumers on the high end are going towards more uh, real estate or more uh, travel or more hospitality, then, you know, follow the money. So let's talk about the diamond elephant in the room. <laughs> That's Tiffany and LVMH. So Tiffany just, you know, every day there's something else. So Tiffany just fast tracked the lawsuit against LVMH. So what do you think will happen when the legal dust settles? I mean, I, th I think, so first of all, if you look at the, um, if you look at the relevance of the deal, um, I, I still think uh, acquiring um, a jewelry company makes a lot of sense. Again, if you trust that the future is female, that jewelry is a very fragmented market, that there are very few sizable brands out there. Um, you know, uh, and if also you consider the phenomenal track record that LVMH has had with Bulgari since they bought that brand in 2011, um, it's, you know, the validity of the approach is still very much there. Plus it drives um, closer to Richemont. Yeah, I mean, there, there are, you know, you, you could argue there might be two possibilities. One, the bid that LVMH uh, made on Tiffany was pre-COVID and then they had to increase uh, that bid and maybe they're, um, you know, thinking, well, post-COVID, maybe we should get a better, um, you know, a better deal. Um, you could argue that, you know, uh, if you're thinking for the next generation, uh, if you look at the market cap of Tiffany relative to the market cap of LVMH, it's a bit of a rounding error. So, you know, getting a discount on a rounding error is a bit of a, a rounding error squared, if I can say. So it won't make <laughs> a huge difference. Um, or, yeah, I mean, to your point, people have um, mentioned that maybe 
maybe there's a possibility that LVMH is looking to switch brides. So, you know, moving out of the Tiffany deal uh, to potentially uh, look to set something up with Richemont. Um, honestly, I don't really have insights on that. Um, obviously, Richemont is a much larger company, uh, much more, um, much bigger in terms of the number of assets uh, with, you know, the Cartier brand being the, the sort of uh, uh, crown jewel, if I can say, uh, uh, not, not significantly bigger than Tiffany, but uh, a lot more profitable for now. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, you know, I think we'll still be talking about this in six months. Nothing's going to, well, I, I would be very surprised if you had a resolution in the short term. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, the validity of, you know, jewelry is a, um, uh, is a sort of compounding growth industry, a very fragmented industry, and one that you want to have some skin in the game in. Uh, that's still completely valid. So what do you think Tiffany's future will look like if the deal falls through? Well, I mean, whether the deal goes ahead or whether it falls through um, for, for different reasons, I think whatever happens, you'll have an acceleration in terms of consolidation. Um, so you have very big brands that um, are independent and, and don't need anyone's help. Uh, you can think about, you know, Hermes, Chanel, uh, Rolex. Uh, then you have very small brands, independent brands that might need um, help. I think Tiffany is somewhere in the middle in the sense that, you know, they're not um, a mega brand, you know, they're not eight to 10 billion in sales, they're uh, at around four, um, and they're not tiny either. So I think, I think, no pun intended, I think uh, Tiffany, if this deal doesn't go through, will have the luxury of being able to remain independent or can have options, you know, to tie up with others. Um, but, you know, again, whether this goes through or not, um, LVMH started decades ago as LVMH, essentially three assets. Now they have 76, you know, the end game, or at least the next 10 years, will have them go from 76 to anywhere between 90 and 100. And whether Tiffany's one of those, you know, anyone's guess at this stage, because to your point, <laughs> there's something new happening every day. Uh, yeah. But um, certainly consolidation uh, that has been, you know, M&A that has been incredibly active in the sector for the past decade will be incredibly active once the world open, uh, opens up uh, next year, hopefully for the next decade. You know, there's a museum exhibition opening in Paris this month, uh, explores how all things Lux have evolved over the centuries. And luxury as a concept has always seemed inherently rooted in materialism. So the question of the day is, you know, what is a life of luxury now? <laughs> I, I still think because uh, the Chinese consumer is uh, front and center, I still think it is about products. Uh, I still think that for the next five, 10 years, it's going to be initially about uh, your place in society and fitting in uh, and symbols um, and symbols, uh, to be fair, right now translates into uh, logos, uh, you know, logos, whether it's um, obvious on a handbag or whether it's more discreet on a ring. You know, we were just talking about Tiffany. Um, one of the uh, recent successes at Tiffany has been the T1 range, which is very obviously recognizable at a distance. Uh, you know, if you're in a bar in a restaurant or, you know, likelihood is you're not today, <laughs> but if you're walking in the street at, at a distance, you can recognize that that's a Tiffany product. So I think in the short term, it's still going to be about things. Uh, but eventually, again, when we move to more of a repeat purchase market and you're moving from buying for yourself to, you know, buying for others to buying for yourself, um, then I think it'll be more about experiences. It'll be more about education, uh, learning, um, and, and, you know, and discovering the world um, less through material uh, elements than through 
uh, reading or traveling or um, you know again uh, continuing to learn every day I think that's uh, um, that's what it can morph into which leads me to my last question which I ask all my guests the final question is the luxury item question if you were stranded on a deserted island and you only had one luxury item <laughs> what luxury item would that be? It can't be any form of air transportation or any transportation for that matter, or anything that requires mobile service. What would that one single luxury item be? So, uh, well, presumably I would be alone on my island, so I wouldn't need to prove a point. So I probably wouldn't need to have like the latest, um, you know, cool shoes or, or, uh, or bag or watch or piece of jewelry. Um, I mean, going back to the idea of, of learning and education, I would probably, I, I took a course in wine recently, um, again, because I needed to exercise my memory. I think it's fun. I think uh, it, wine is an infinite world um, in terms of, you, you never get to understand it fully. And it's, right. um, um, and you know, obviously it was very convenient ahead of COVID-19 hitting uh, to, be, to be able to taste wine um, in a different approach. So I would probably, I would probably buy a book on wine and continue to learn um, uh, and hoping that someone would come and save me and that immediately after reading about, uh, you know, Australian Shiraz or, 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 or Barolo or whatever else that I would, uh, I would be able to sample that as soon as I'm off my island. <laughs> or that message in a bottle that, wa that washes ashore is actually uh, a bottle of Chardonnay. <laughs> <laughs> So how can listeners uh, buy Future Lux? Uh, I mean, you can order it from your uh, local, uh, you know, bookstore. You can obviously uh, um, order it on Amazon. Um, you, you also have the, the Kindle version there um, if, you're, if you're less into uh, material, <laughs> uh, you know, hard products. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty easy to access. Iran, thank you so much for coming on the show. You've been a great guest. And the great thing is you're letting us know that we should be hopeful about the next decade in luxury and we need more of that positivity. Thanks for having me. Wish you all the best. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time. <laughs>